And hello, and welcome to another episode of a Bobcast of Stories. And today I have a very, very special guest. He is a five-time North American champion, a 2019 club champion, a two-time Clash of Titans champion, a three-time Super Bowl by Invitational champion. He's an Elite Eight champion, four-time Junior Nationals champion, two-time Junior National Team bronze medalist with Team USA at the Junior ISBHF World Championships and a silver medalist with national with the men's national team at the 2005 ISBHF World Championships. A ball hockey coach legend. Corey Hirsch. I don't know about legend. I appreciate it. That's <laughs> not just me, though. I couldn't do that without the players and the staff that helps. That's for sure. I mean, not, we've been very blessed to have a good group of guys around, which you've been a part of a time or two, Bob. So thanks yeah, for having me today, I, man. Yeah, I got, to, I, I got a chance to be coached by – by you, I consider you a legend. I got to be coached uh, by you uh, at the Clash of Titans. Yeah, it was fun. The one year, yeah, it was yeah. a good time. Came up short that year, but we played well. Uh, I remember that tournament vividly. I think we had a Friday night game against Rebels. Didn't turn out too well, but we turned it around pretty quickly that year. So um, there's, it's a hell of a tournament to play in. It's the top level competition. We always talk about how difficult it is. Grueling on the body. You, you can attest to that. And then the, the knees. Oh yeah. The knees on some of the cement surfaces they play on in, uh, in Canada don't feel too good for a couple of days, but it's all worth it when you're grinding with the guys and have playing a sport you love, right? So appreciate the intro, man. That's that's it's a lot. It's too much. Uh, yeah, no, it's not. It's not even enough for you. I mean, talking about like that tournament, that was uh, that was some of the best ball hockey I've ever played, and the the guys were so welcoming. Like I was brand new, I didn't even know anything. Like I I didn't even know how to react. I came to practice one day and. I mean, I felt like I fit in, and then we went up there, and I mean, we had a really, really good run. It was just championship just kind of didn't go our way. Sometimes that happens. So midnight's a good team, though. That's a tough team for anybody to beat, and so if you're going to lose to teams, you may as well lose to teams like Midnight Express, who seem to have a good pulse on the game as it is. So um, yeah, but it, it was a good run, and we we appreciate having you join us that that, that tournament too. Yeah. Um, so let's just get into it a little bit. Um, how did you get into the ball? How did you get into ball hockey? What impact has it really made on your life? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of kids that just love the game of hockey, you wind up playing in the street. And so my mom's house next next door, two doors down, actually, there was a parking lot on an angle downgrade and had like potholes and craters and cracks in it. But no matter what the weather was, my, my brothers and I and um, local friends in the neighborhood would, would drag the nets down from my mom's house or from a friend's house up the street and we would play. And then eventually um, – probably about eight, nine, ten years old, we got put on um, a city all-star team for our neighborhood. And we would compete against other uh, neighborhood all-star teams um, on tennis court. And then eventually a tennis court we played on. You may have played ice there. It's, uh, it was at Neville on the south side. It wasn't RMU's Neville um, over on Neville Island. It was uh, a rink called Neville Rink on the south side of Pittsburgh. And it was back in the cut, like, on, like 23rd Street or 21st Street. Oh, wow. Up above everything. And so it was – but, um, but that ice rink had a, a deck rink built outside of it. And so um, then we, we wound up putting our team and playing in deck leagues then. And we thought we were the only ones that had a rink like that. Come to find out later on in life, as my younger brother Jared was asked to play on a travel teams, as travel teams started to develop and come about, that there were actually rinks in like Lemonster, Massachusetts and Penn Hills. And there were tournaments all over the place. And so um, you know, when I was too old, when I aged out of playing, I wound up coaching because no one else was really around to coach my brothers, my two brothers' team, my brother Brett, my brother Jared. And so since we didn't have um, anyone to coach, I volunteered to do it. I was already aged out. Um, 
So I did it, it kind of stuck. I really enjoyed it. I wound up coaching younger kids for the Southside Market House Recreation Program, and we played in, again, city all-star teams. So I was coaching some eight, nine-year-olds, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, 13 to 15-year-olds, and having a ball doing it. And um, teaching is what I do by nature. I'm a third-grade math teacher, so it was, it was fun to be able to teach a sport like the one I loved. So that's how I got involved in it. Um, from there, it's just kind of um, sticking to it, traveling all, traveling all over the place. You get to know a lot of people. One of those people is Mark Madden, and Mark introduced me to the U.S. game. And um, since then, being a member of the U.S. team since 2008, where I was with the junior program, and now here we are today. That's awesome. As far so as the, you, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, wait, so you said you got to play, there's like city all-star games, like yeah. on tennis courts. How, how, did, how, is that even, how did you guys even figure, find out about that? Like how is that like ran? Yeah, um, so at the time, uh, City Parks and Recreation um, had a group of people focused on building leagues for baseball, building leagues for soccer. Um, now they do something um, with soccer, and there's another type of soccer that they play indoors um, right now, but they had a hockey program. And so every park and recreation center was uh, signed up to go ahead and you know, basically put a team in, start a team in. And so I played for um, two coaches, John and Harry from 22nd Street on the south side at Ormsby and then eventually uh, for the south side Market House on 12th Street. And it was fun. We always had rivals with Bloomfield. A buddy of mine, Dave Magliocco, many people know him as Muck. He'll be laughing when he hears this, but we used to pound Bloomfield. <laughs> we used to pound Bloomfield all the time. Muck, you heard it here. No, it was always us and them in the championship. I'll never forget a guy, a young kid. was probably I was an 11-year-old goaltender and there was a kid on their team. I couldn't tell you his name, but I can tell you what it said on the back of his helmet. He had a sticker that said, I'm toast, you're burnt. And we took offense to that sticker. So um, <laughs> we always have, always have fun rivalries with Bloomfield. So now I tease Muck today about the Southside Bloomfield rivalry. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was fun. You don't have that as far as hockey goes anymore in the city of Pittsburgh. You have um, different rinks that are built and different programs that are built that have their own in-house leagues. But um, when it comes to travel, um, you know, there's packed organization and then there's the travel hockey circuit that goes to other places but it's more of an all-star team based on you know those um rinks that have been developed either non-profits or for-profits like the murraysvilles the penn hills of the world that are the for-profits or the non-profits like the brooklines and the, the team pits but yeah it legit used to be city neighborhoods just strictly city neighborhoods um arlington and bloomfield and Southside and uh, mount washington had teams and it was a lot of fun so you don't see that in the city anymore but you know on the outskirts of the city aside from maybe brookline and and Team Pitt, maybe Green Tree has some hockey up there too at D2. I'm not even so sure that's in the city, but yeah, it was fun. That's really cool. Yeah, I, we, we have uh, Bill's Deck hockey. Bill's Deck, yep. From, yeah, big one for me. It's Ryle Grub with uh, Ryan Shannon, Lanny Knoll, mm -hmm. Willie McKean, all those guys. Yep. So, um, how, so it sounds like you already kind of answered my question a little bit, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, how are you able to grow the game so big in the Pittsburgh area? People see you as like, um, I guess a guy on the frontier, like that just started building like the Pittsburgh ball hockey, like to what it's known as today. Like, how are you able to do that? No, I think that would be a misconception to be honest with you. I didn't do it alone. I mean, you know, for, for me, there are a lot of people out there who have probably even had more of a footprint in just how the game is built. But to be honest, it makes it really easy in a city like Pittsburgh where you've got a professional team like the Penguins that are, you know, so, so easy to follow, so easy to watch, so easy to root for. Um, and so for, 
for us growing up with a guy like Mario Lemieux, who was everybody's idol. If you were into hockey, that's just who you wanted to emulate and be like and, and idolize your game after, model your game after. And the players that played around him, you know, Kevin Stevens, et cetera, that was through the 90s growing up watching Yager and those guys. And so, you know, it made it more enticing to get out and play and want to play. I chose, you know, hockey for that reason because it was more fun to watch those guys than watch maybe the Pirates in baseball as the Pirates were starting to go on the decline throughout the mid-90s. And so you have that, and then you've got people who, you know, began to build rinks and, and build programs, and you've got the city of Pittsburgh who did a good job of, of creating programs within, you know, their recreation centers. And I just so happened to be a guy who, like many others, wanted to volunteer and give time back, especially because my brothers went and had a place to play. And once it, it became me volunteering, I began uh, to work for Parks and Recreation. And um, I helped to run programs out of the Southside Market House gym um, where we were just trying to teach the kids the right way to play the game, the right way to pass, the right way to shoot, the right way to hold a stick. And we had some experience in doing it. And all the years watching my cousin play ice hockey or watching the Penguins play at practices or if I had a chance to go to a game, I'm just being a sponge and soaking it all in and being able to um, you know, reiterate to the players that were young what I had learned throughout the coaches that were with me and the players that I learned playing with and the players that I watched play. So, I mean, that was just, you know, a way of giving back, I think. And then for me, I think I'm more proud of as time went on um, and the gods began to develop some of the free clinics that we did for whether it be the, the gods or the free clinics that we did for Team USA. And I think others caught wind of that and would start to have clinics of their own um as a way of giving back uh, running many tournaments i'm not the only one i'm sure as hell i'm not the only one that does tournaments there are plenty of tournaments but you know we would do those two and ironman tournaments were fundraisers that eventually caught on and a lot of people did jamborees or fundraisers like that after us and um i think more than anything maybe just being a model trying to be a model to the kids again i teach their grade math and for me um i try every day to be a father to the, the kids that don't necessarily have one or that do have one, but can use another strong male in their, in their life. And sometimes even a mom, if they need one of those too. And I think that if I can do that with hockey players as well, just be a big brother to them or be a, be a model adult for them. Then I think it's a, the, the way that we could give back best. I always say, if we could save one kid, then I did my job and kept one kid off the streets, then we did our job. And from there, I mean, you asked earlier how it's changed and impacted my life. I mean, the friends that I've met along the way, the family that I've developed, my wife's best friends are hockey wives, you know, so that's probably the biggest impact ever made on me. It's, it's, it's like just a big family out there. It's, yeah. um, I mean, it's something that I know, like playing around the world and everything like that. Like it's, I, I, I have people I talk to still in Germany and in France and stuff Yeah, all over the country. And I mean, some of them are my closest friends to this yep. day. It's, and it's, it's just great to always have like people out there like that you can talk to. Um, so how, how did you actually form the gods and how did you choose to name the Pittsburgh gods? Uh, so, you know, we traveled around the city playing with a city all-star team. And eventually we took our all-star team and traveled around to Penn Hills to Niagara Falls, um, and played in tournaments up there. Um, eventually, uh, we had three teams out of the Pittsburgh area, uh, out of Team Pittsburgh's organization, that were playing on an A-B level. But the guys, the kids, the 14- and 15-year-olds at the time knew that if they merged those three teams together, they would be more of a powerhouse and they'd be able to go and compete in nationals instead of finishing fifth or sixth place like they were doing at the time. And so <clears throat> Team Pittsburgh's board decided to vote on a coach and I was lucky enough for them to vote me in and, and uh, we eventually held a tryout for, for team Pittsburgh and we, we built a team that can go up to Leominster, Massachusetts for uh, deck hockey nationals. And 
um, competed really well. I'll never forget losing in overtime in the first year of the semifinals to Belmar, who wound up winning the championship. So for us, that was a big deal because you know, we didn't know how well we would compete if we did. We, we thought we'd be competitive, but to, to compete like that, it's heartbreaking loss. And then the next year, losing the championship to Belmar, um, Aaron Hahn put a team on his back. We were down 4 nothing in the finals after beating Penn Hills in the semifinal, 4-1, to one, I think it was. And Belmar was up. Belmar, New Jersey was up on us 4 nothing. Aaron scored four straight goals. I think we wound up losing like 5-4 to four or 6-4 to four in a really good final. But we knew we could compete that way. And eventually our, our, our team turned into the junior ranks as they aged out of the 15, you know, 16 and under U16s. And when they turned to the U20 age, there were some of the younger guys. But we had sprinkled in a couple of vets, 20, 19 years old, but not many. So we were on the younger side of it. And as we started to compete really well with Mark Madden's Penn Hills Wizards team, Mark got the idea of um, creating a powerhouse to travel and play at a men's A level, which is what you had a chance to play for us on. And we created United. Um, players that wanted to play with Mark and I would come on that, that could. And we competed extremely high level with men's A and did super well there. Um, never forget going to nationals. And it was either, either 07 or 08 in Lemonster. Again, deck hockey nationals where they're playing center line offsides. It's not ball hockey, but it was great. It's what we grew up playing. And uh, we lost in the finals to classic Rams team and by a heartbreaker. Um, some would still question a call or two up there. But afterwards, <laughs> it, was, um, it, was, it was 2010 that um, Mark and I were competing against each other. Um, uh, at the junior ranks, he had his Penn Hills Wizards, and we still had Team Pittsburgh. And we were losing to them regularly in the Lemonster uh, Jets were a, a team that was beating us regularly at the junior ranks. And Timmy Tagmeyer one year, a uh, defenseman for us, uh, we call him the general. He, we're at Wendy's after losing nationals in Philly. And we just lost to the Wizards in the semis. And we're joking around and talking about how we need to beat them the following year because everyone was going to be in their, their last year of playing. And he just jokingly said, what's the only thing that could beat a Wizard? Maybe we need a new team name. We were all like, I don't know. What's the only thing that could beat a Wizard? And he was like, God, I was like, maybe we need to create a new team name, a new look, a new, you know, come get away from the team Pittsburgh. Um, you know, just the, the, the standard team pit logo and the standard team pit name and create the Pittsburgh gods. And maybe it's something we need to, to do to get over a hurdle and put our minds behind us. And so we did, we, 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 it stuck in that year, uh, going into that year, Oh seven, it was at the junior ranks. We wound up beating the wizards in the national championship and we beat Lemister in the semifinals prior to, and ever since then the gods have been rolling. What a way to make! What a way to name the gods. That's awesome. I I had no idea. That's really cool, actually. Well, wizards, wizard. Wizards are pretty top-notch name. I mean, how much yeah, you have get to, than wizards? You, yeah, you have to. You have to be a god to beat them. Yeah. So, so what? What was your first A tournament win? Um. Well, the gods' first A tournament came in 2011. Uh, we played as United prior to, and then in 2010. The gods and wizards were still playing against each other. And Mark was hosting. You were younger, but you might remember it. At Neville Island on Robert Morris's complex, there was a men's C-level championship. It was super high-level competitive, but only a couple out-of-town teams. I mean, I shouldn't say a couple, Bob, you know. Bob. Doesn't, doesn't, he still, doesn't he still run? At, or is it just like novice? And yeah, he, he, run, he runs like the rec divisions, rec A, rec B. It might be called novice A, novice B. He, he, he did come back and do a men's C division. <sighs> Um, but he had, you know, Denny Schlegel was one of the best players ever and he would come down and play for Buffalo. So the, 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 tournament was, was still very competitive at the time. Wu-Tang was a great team with older guys from the area and bag company full of guys from Dexstar who had won. They were the only team to ever go from Pittsburgh to win 
So Arsenal did it uh, recently in Barrie. Um, so at the time, you know, Bad Company was thriving right around that, you know, 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 era. And um, so, you know, it was so competitive. And Mark decided not to coach anymore after his 2010-1. We won, won up winning as the gods in 2010. And some of those guys who played with us for United that played with the Wizards still, Ricky Zimmick, Jim Doherty, Ryan Jones, John Kalachuk, Corey Citroniti, and the list goes on um, of guys that, you know, wanted to keep playing. And so they came over and played with the gods. And we, we wound up in 2011 going and playing in, in our first men's A-League tournament, North American Championships, and a loss to the War Pigs in the quarterfinals. They're from Niagara. Um, and then in 2012, we, we won the North American Championship for our first win. And since then, uh, we've won five of those. Um, and you guys have been rolling since yeah, then. Yeah, I've been looking, looking, at, yeah. looking at your guys' resume and how many times you guys win. It's, uh, it's crazy. So, a lot of luck, a lot of good fortune, a lot of luck, a lot of good matchups along the way. Um, you have to have those good bounces, and you have to have guys committed to come. So we've been very fortunate. So you said you became coach of Team USA in 2008, right, juniors? Yeah. yeah. Um, when did you get – when did you move to the men's program? When did you become coach of Team USA's men's program? Yeah, uh, 2015. I coached juniors in 08. I was an assistant to Mark. Um, and Chris Hauser was the general manager at the time of the ISBHF World Championships. And then 2010, uh, Mark Madden slid into the GM role and I slid into the head coach role. Went to Austria. 2012, we took a bronze medal team, a really good loaded young bronze medal team to the Czech Republic. Came up just shy of a chance at gold. Uh, we needed a couple of things to work out in our favor and didn't. We actually had a lead against the Czech Republic and needed to pull the goaltender to get another goal to, to win that game by two. Oh, wow. It was one of those. So one of those, yeah, one of those scenarios where there weren't, you know, playoff matchups you had to qualify for your placement um, based on your round robin. So it was a tough way not to get a chance at gold. But, again, we lost to Canada 4-2 to two in a round robin. We didn't do our job then. Um, but, yeah, we wound up tying the check that game, I believe. Um, and there, there were a couple other ties that wound up keeping us out of a gold medal contention. We had a hell of a bronze run. Um, and then after that, um, Steve Gregory took over the team in 2014. I sat out 13, 14, I sat out. And then 2015, I came in and had one of the most amazing experiences of my life going to the men's level. Um, the men had it all. We had a ton of talent. We had a ton of passion. Guys were sick of losing guys were sick of not placing at a high place. You know, anything less than, you know, third, you're not meddling. Right. So guys didn't want that anymore. And we went to Switzerland and, had a hell of a tournament, just one one that I'll never forget. I remember watching you guys. I was I was interning at a senator's office, and I would have on one computer, I'd have your guys' game on, and on the other, I'd be typing out stuff. I'd be like, well, me and my buddies would be texting back and forth. It was a, it's definitely an experience to watch. Uh, what would you say is like the biggest difference between international play and men's A play over here? Yeah, I, well, the size of the rink is a is a huge the Olympic size of course yeah, yeah. You're, you're running on Olympic size ice rinks you know so that's a huge difference um I think that the competition's higher men's a is super you know I keep saying the word super sorry but you know men's a is ridiculously competitive it's very high level um teams like the Americans and the Saints and obviously any team from Massachusetts is quality so if Bobby Hauser puts a team together whether it be the Rams or a team that he's playing for um, it's going to be a good got, team. Yeah, you got, it's going to be a good team. You've got um, Garden State Warriors right now who have a lot of guys that have USA experience on it. So really young, fast team as well. Um, and the list goes on. I mean, with Arsenal doing what they're doing right now, they're an up-and-coming team. I shouldn't even say up-and-coming. They're here. You know, they're here. They're good. They're tough to beat. Um, so it, it is competitive. But, 
you know, now you take an all-star team practically as best you can and, and form it to match a, a, a system that, you, you know, your team's going to have to coach and play through. And, and, and if you can grab players that fit that system and have that good chemistry or have um, the, the character you need for the squad, then you mix that with what Canada's doing. They're ridiculously talented. I mean, they can field probably five world championship teams out of Canada alone for the tens and twenties and thirties and 40,000, 50,000 ball hockey players that play in that country. Um, and again, you know, ice hockey ends in Canada, they go and play ball hockey. That's not the same here. We're trying to change that here. We want players to end their ice hockey season and come play ball hockey. And if they're doing it in Canada and you got NHL players like, you know, Danik Martell, who's played games for Tampa Bay or Alex Burroughs, who does that up in, up in Canada, um, Jonathan Druin, that's what he does. You know, even Crosby was doing that for a while before he signed a big contract with the Pens. So if they do that in Canada, um, you know it's pretty serious. And the Czechs and the Slovaks are incredibly fast, incredibly fit. You know, they, they, they work out together. They practice and train together. Um, men's A-League teams, that doesn't happen here in the States too often. Guys have their own lives. Guys aren't getting paid. So if they can get together at all maybe once a week before a tournament, then – you're lucky. Um, and it's what the gods try to do is practice every single Sunday. And a lot of times that doesn't work out for a player schedule, but you know, it's, it's a religion in Europe. And so the Swiss are, are doing it regularly. They're playing as a team competitively regularly in leagues. And you don't have that here with the U S team. So it makes the competition even that much harder. So, yeah, I had a, I had a friend, I played in La roche in France and secondly in France, he was on the Slovak national team. I actually asked him about playing America and everything. He said, you guys are very fast, very, very talented. But he said like, they, they are trained nonstop. Like yeah. once ice hockey's over, they are just, they're rolling. Like, yeah, they're they're all together. And you know what? The Finns are coming up. Uh, the Finns, I shouldn't even say are coming up just like our, they're here. Uh, Finland was great in 2015. It was their first tournament. They gave us fits. I think we beat them three to one. And like I said, we played lights out that entire, entire week. Could have been a two, one game actually, but um, as close as it was, they only had 12 player, 12 runners max. I mean, they didn't know what they were really getting themselves into. And so to compete in your first ever ball hockey, you know, world championship, maybe even ball hockey tournament, they took a bunch of ice hockey players and brought them over to compete. And now the Finnish program is elite. Um, they just got to a gold medal, lost a heartbreaker to Slovakia um, in the last world championships in Slovakia in 2019 and um, had a lead, lost it, had a lead, lost it. If I'm not mistaken, they had a game go to, I think it might've been an overtime game off the top of my head. I can't remember, but um, to, to be in your third world championship like the Finns were and to, to, to continue to rise. I mean, you, now you got Switzerland and you've got the Finnish team, the Czechs, the Slovaks, Team USA, and obviously Canada. Competition throughout the world is getting tougher and tougher. But when you see these guys, I mean, the Finland guys, they're running the bleachers. And imagine, like, you know, we both live in Pittsburgh, Bob, so you got PBG Paints Arena where the Pens play, and that's arena like the size, almost like the size of where we're playing at in, in Europe. And it's packed to the rafters, but during games – you see the Finn players running the steps just as a warm-up. I mean, these guys come physically fit and ready to go. So if you can't match that intensity and, and that physical work ethic, you're, you're going you're gonna to fall behind. And uh, you know, I'm not so sure men's A-League is as serious as, as that. Um, and, yeah, and of course. It's the, international, it's the international level. I just wanted to hear from your point of view and give all our listeners like, a point of view of like, the total difference yeah. between like, international play and men's A play and yeah. the seriousness of it and like, how other countries train their players and everything like yeah. that. Um, so you guys got to play Slovakia in Slovakia in a packed stadium, in a packed arena, correct? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times. What was that? What was that like? 
how like well, how many fans were there? Like, yeah, someone how- asked. Yeah, someone asked us recently. Um, I think it was Deck Hockey Focus podcast was doing a group. Uh, they were interviewing a couple guys that played on prior U.S. national teams, like Corey Wilson. I think Billy Sullivan was on there. Chris Liebers was on there, and one of the questions was about a rivalry. Is U.S. Canada a big rivalry? And truthfully, we haven't played in um, many in many. Um, uh, I would say games that you know really really matter round robin games. Yeah, we've had a couple of them, but uh, you know games that are crucial. We just had a quarterfinal loss to them in, in the last World Championship. But not, not many playoff games where the game actually mattered um, the most, and so it was do or die. But Slovakia, since 2015, we've had a bunch of those games, and um, playing in Slovakia in 2019, your crowd could be anywhere from I'd say 4,000 to maybe eight, nine, ten thousand people, given given the circumstance of the game gold medal game it was packed to the rafters and they're jumping up and down and they got their their horns and their vuvuzelas and they're they got their drums and they're making all kind of noise it's felt like a european soccer game I mean, they take it seriously they don't sit down they're standing they're screaming and i think 2017 was probably our trickiest um it was um a game where we played against uh, uh czech republic and it was just jam-packed to the rafters so um oh one second bob okay Um, so yeah, that was, um, that was probably, um, the craziest for us because when we were in check in 2017, it was round Robin game and we had just come off a silver winning the silver medal, uh, or losing the gold, depending on how you look at it. And they had a good, it was national. It was the first nationally televised game of the tournament, uh, real early in the first day of the tournament, prime time, seven thirty, eight o'clock. And, um, everyone was there. The whole community came out. And um, with a couple questionable calls that went on, there was a, a goal that went in for the checks that was disallowed. Um, so the fans didn't like that too much. Not minutes later, we, we took a shot. Johnny Ruiz scored on a, a two-on-one that was almost like a ghost goal. Hit the crossbar, came straight down, never really crossed the line fully. And they awarded us a goal to tie that game. And then the, they showed the replay on, this, on the Jumbotron above. And after they showed the replay – the fans were dousing the referees, just whistling, which is the form of booing in Europe, and they're dousing them with, with uh, bottles. And we had to pull our team back so that our team wasn't getting hit. And you got Billy Sullivan, who guys were reaching over the breachers trying to grab Billy, and you know, we're pulling Billy back. And it was insane. Um, we wound up winning that game on an epic shootout. An epic shootout. Cody Warilla wound up scoring one of the sickest goals ever in a shootout. And uh, so we wound up winning that game, and we had to be escorted out of a different entrance because of how passionate those fans are and how they didn't – Oh, they were going to kill you guys. It wasn't yeah, your fault. Yeah. It was the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, the tournament committee didn't think about the um, casualties that could occur by not having instant replay implemented um, with referees, you know, reviewing a goal or a questionable goal or, or, or goals that probably, you know, maybe could have been or not allowed. And so – um, they just showed it by chance on the on the jumbotron because they had that technology in the building. Thought it'd be great for the fans, at, you know, for the atmosphere of the game. And yet they didn't think about how that could come back to bite them. Oh, in well, the- look at that! <laughs> so that Crazy. that cha- I'm I'm sure that has changed nowadays. Crazy, so. yeah. Well, they have, yeah. They, they you either shut it off and you don't have a replay at all, or you implement replay throughout the entire tournament. Um, and they wound up fixing it right away. But yeah, it, it was it was probably the wildest game I've ever been a part of. So I have a theoretical question, not theoretical question, but I'm, I'm curious on what you think. So the end game obviously is to get ball hockey res- recognized as an Olympic sport. Uh, what, what do you see as the bit, biggest obstacle of that? 
Yeah, um, I don't think it's far-fetched. I think, you know, 2028 Olympics, if I'm not mistaken, are in Los Angeles, and that's a huge goal for the ISBHF is to get um, enough countries to be able to be sanctioned uh, and, and recognized as an Olympic sport. So How many countries do you need? You, you need 40. You need 40 countries that play this sport, but don't just play this sport, that actually have a organization structured um, and approved by the government. Like for us, it's USA Ball Hockey. That's a nonprofit organization approved by the federal government. And with that, you have to have bylaws, which we have. You have to have an executive board, which we have an elected executive board, which, you know, will be up for election every two or three years. Um, you have to have a strategic plan in place for your company. And so we did our part in this last, in the last two years with USA Ball Hockey by structuring USA Ball Hockey, and we've got more goals and, uh, aside from the Olympics. It's one of, I'd say, you know, one of three goals for USA Ball Hockey is to get to the Olympics. But as far as ISBHF goes and the international play goes, it's to help out other countries get all of those things, to get a, a, a business or, a, you know, a nonprofit business formed or a for-profit, however you look at it, um, formed that would represent and govern the body of hot ball hockey in that country that has an executive board, that has bylaws, that has, you know, plans. And so to do that in an organized way, the ISBHF is, is having um, support go to other countries. Recently, Pakistan just got sanctioned. Um, recently, um, uh, Morocco just was another country that became a sanctioned um, organization. And so they're at around 11. USA hasn't been sanctioned yet or recognized as in our country yet. We're getting there. We, we have, we've made sure our books are aligned the right way. And you know, within the next calendar year, we want to be able to do what we need to do to show that we have a national, we need a national youth registration and, or, or actually na national registration in general. And we don't have that yet. And so USA ball hockey is working on that. USA hockey has it. Hockey Canada has a registration. Wrestling has it. Baseball has it. Basketball has it. So, I mean, it's, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. And, and like I said, the growth has been crazy in the last two years where you went from maybe having four or five countries two years ago to now having 11 countries or 12 countries that have um, recognition. You can petition to have your sport participate in the Olympics with only having 20 countries recognized. And so, you know, if we can petition and have our, 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 our business in order and our paperwork together um, as an entire group of the ISBHF, then um, they can, we can move ahead and, and possibly be in the Olympics with just 20 countries. Um, but again, you know, the goal was to get 40 or more. And I think if we continue to do what they're doing and you know, USA Ball Hockey is here to support those other countries as well. So if Greece, if Italy, if others need to, you know, a lending hand and us to help guide them through how we did it, then they can go ahead and do it too. So for us in the country, it's only a matter of filing the paperwork pretty soon. Um, we have other fish to fry for now, like a national registration process. And so once we've got, you know, coaching certification program and referee certification program done and insurance ready to go for all these players, then we'll be able to go ahead and move the next steps. That's awesome. I mean, like, yeah, like you said, before hockey is like a family if another country needs help to create the sport and make the sport bigger we'll be there to help exactly anyways um so just moving on to a different subject i'd like to know uh what was your biggest win as a coach oh man oh man because i know you've had a lot of them but which one sticks out in your mind Thank um you know biggest win i wouldn't be doing any of the players that played for me justice if i just pick one of them because there are so many big wins. I mean, I, I remember our first North American championship win back in 2012, like it was yesterday. Maybe it's because I've watched the video a ton of times. But, <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that was huge for us because 
you know, we went in just as a group of guys who wanted to play competitive hockey. And so to beat a team like the Midnight Express in the, in the championship and really frustrate Midnight Express, we watched those guys break their sticks just because of how we changed a style of play. And if you want to talk about influence, maybe that's one way we did it, just by forechecking um, and throwing multiple forechecks at them, you know, creating a trap that was never really done before in ball hockey and executed against a team that's so good at moving the ball and doesn't want to dump. And we forced that team to dump and chase, and they didn't want to do that. And so you'd see those guys break their sticks. So I'd say, you know, the first North American, most recent North American was against Ottawa in 2019 was a huge one because the roster emerged so much since our first one in 2012 with younger guys now participating on it. Um, and to win the overtime against the Ottawa Godfathers was, was, was amazing. I was happy for Dan Gregory, who's been a longtime journeyman with us. And I'm talking journeyman, not a team. He's always been loyal to us. He's never bounced team to team. I'm talking about just position-wise. You know, Dan has done it all for us. He's, he's been a first-line um, forward to a third-line forward to a guy who had to sit the bench for a while. Now he's dropped back the defense, and he scored a goal from the point in that overtime. That was a big one. Club championships was – ultimately one I'll never forget against red light Friday night. You can't fit thousands of people at RMU at Neville Island, but we, we tried our best to do so. And I think we did. It, it was, it was incredible to watch. It was, I was there for that. It was incredible to watch. Yeah. So you get like Alex Burroughs to come down and this is your first real shot as a God's team at, at a guy who's played in the pros before. And this team that's won 11 or 12 Canadian nationals stopped playing five on five. Cause it was too easy in their opinion. And to have them come down and play under the lights and then, again, have to beat them again in the semifinals before even playing a great war pick team in three overtimes in the club championships was, was incredible. But, I, I mean, the games against Slovakia are really what stand out to me probably the most. I mean, to, to beat Slovakia, we're last team – the U.S. was the last team to beat Slovakia. It was our very first game, my very first game coaching the men's program in 2015. I remember the, the work ethic that the players put in. They bought into the system. Um, we had great motivation going into the game. Um, to play against this gold medal champ from 2013. And big turnaround. I mean, 2013, the Slovaks beat U.S. by, I think it was like 11 nothing in St. John's, Newfoundland in a round-robin game. And so to be able to beat them, you know, and, and the next time we, you know, we met them, and I wasn't a part of the 2013 team, but that first game against, against them in Switzerland set the tone for the rest of our tournament. Um, so for me, that may have been the biggest, you know, victory for me. It's just because of how hard it is to win at that level and how hard it is to beat a team like Slovakia. And again, no one else has done it in regulation since. And, and that's, you know, five, here we are five years later. So I, my next question is, but I feel like I already know, what was the most heartbreaking loss you've ever had as a coach? Yeah, yeah you already know that one. Yeah, for sure. Um, man, Slovakia hurts. The, the, the gold medal game, it hurts. It hurts. Uh, 3-1 lead going into the third period. A um, bunch of things you wish you could have just done differently in that third period. Uh, some what-ifs, um, but no regrets by any means. The guys laid it out there and went to overtime and had, man, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe a handful of, of scoring opportunities before Slovakia ever pounded that, that game-winning goal in. And to really never even give them much, to keep them contained to the outside, to not give up odd man rushes after their very first goal in that game. Um, that speaks a lot about how the guys played and how smart they played. And, you know, again, a bounce or two doesn't go your way. And it's what, you know, I talked about it earlier with the gods. We've been very fortunate to have a bounce or two or a call or two go our way. And in that Slovak game, a couple face-off losses for us, a couple bounces for them, found the guy and found the blade and they were able to, you know, capitalize. And we didn't, but um, 
it's not to take away the the effort. I mean, that was a gold medal effort from from our guys, and yeah, that 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 was definitely the most heartbreaking. I, I remember going to swim at um, a friend of ours now, one of my former players, Jimmy Zubik's house, and I was swimming with Jimmy, and Jimmy was telling me after that he had pulled over on the side of the road to watch that game in overtime and how devastated even he was. And I think that you could feel the pain from not just us, but the family that was behind us and the friends that were watching us. And you had mentioned you were watching it and you just knew that everyone was rooting for you and everyone wanted to see that happen and to not have it happen is, is, is painful, but um, hopefully we'll get back there soon and, 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 and do it the right way. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I mean, that's your goal, right? 2021. Where's that at? 2021 has been moved with, uh, with COVID-19. Um, they, they packed up the 2021 men and women's senior games. And so they'll move it to 2022. Anything that was going to be played here this year in 2020. Um, yeah, we moved to 2021. So everything moved back a year. So it's going to be in Manitoba in Canada. Um, oh, no. Yeah. A little, a little close to home, a little closer to home. We're hoping that because it is the closest to home cooking we could possibly have asked for. At this point, at least in a long time, even St. John's, Newfoundland isn't this close. Um, Manitoba's closer. Um, so um, with it being a little closer, we're hoping that the hunger, the passion that the guys have, they, um, you know, they, uh, they, they're able to commit, especially now that we're getting closer to um, you know, the, the, the middle. Of, I'd say you know, we're almost two years out now. Um, we want to start to plan, and we're now searching for the right general manager. And from there, develop the, he'll help to develop the coaching staff. And if I get fortunate enough to come back and it works out with my family, I'll come back. And it's always up to the family and timing. So, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so let's talk about the club championships. <laughs> you want to tell, do you want to tell people what they are and how, how did you form the club championships? When, why did you decide to do it? Um, there just isn't a lot. There's not really been a ton of men's a league hockey here in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh is a major hub for ball hockey. Wasn't there the elite eight that used to be in Pittsburgh? Yeah. Yeah. We, we ran the elite eight in 2013 and 14, um, won at the first year and then lost at the second year to the saints. And then, um, it, you know, my fam, you know, my family began to grow. And so, um, I didn't put the time and effort into running tournaments and, um, we continue to play the gods continue to play. Gods continue to go away. Um, God bless my wife, Jessica. She was like, listen, you guys want to do a grow the game tour with the gods and go out there and try to um, figure out what the rest of the country and other parts of Canada is like, go ahead by all means. So we went to Iowa and we went to Montreal and the way that really came about was us with the idea of bringing another elite tournament to Pittsburgh. Um, not to mention that aside from Harrisburg and then North American championships, we would prepare throughout the months of January, February to go play in that tournament. And then early part of March to get ready for the North American championships, the cool hockey runs. But then after that, there's nothing until November at the clash of Titans for men's a level for the gods. And so we wanted to add another tournament to the circuit um, for the gods that weren't already traveling for team USA. Some of us were coaching and we couldn't do any more travel as far as players went because we were already leaving our families to go coach teams or we were leaving our families for team USA. So you know, with there being no in-between uh, March and November for men's A-League hockey, aside from a tournament in, in maybe Massachusetts, which never really worked out for our schedules, um, we thought, why not try to have one in the middle of May here in Pittsburgh and, and try to bring the atmosphere of what Switzerland or Czech Republic or Slovakia was like and try to treat the, 
the players like gold, like we're treated over there at the world championships, try to create an atmosphere that makes you feel like you're a professional athlete. And I think we nailed it. I think think you guys did too. It was, it was, it was one of the best tournaments I've ever played in. Those tournaments will never, ever, ever exist if it wasn't for all the teams that come down. And I'm not just saying that, like, you know, we said it from the, I got on the phone with the other, um, tournament organizer or team organizers and team reps and team captains. And if Jay Capaldi wasn't going to come down from the war pigs, if, um, the Barbus boys weren't going to bring the rebels down, if, um, red light was just a bonus. Uh, we got contacted by one of their captains, Nelson Vargas Diaz, um, demanding the gods come to Montreal to play three on three. They will pay our way. And we are no team if we don't come and play three on three against them. And my response was, well, listen, number one, we'd love to come up. Number two, you don't have to pay our way. We don't, we don't appreciate handouts. Um, you know, we'll pay our own way. Um, thanks for the gesture. But number three, we'll come to you in Montreal if you come to us in Pittsburgh. We'll come play a sport we've never really played before, three-on-three. You've got to come back to play five-on-five. And here are the teams that are coming. Um, and they had a ton of questions. Um, and we answered every question right. And once the, we agreed to go up there and they agreed to come down here, it made the atmosphere, it made the tournament even that much better. Um, and so – for that, yeah, if it wasn't for those, those players sacrificing to come down and, and do another tournament, then uh, it wouldn't have been half as good as it was. But, yeah, I think we did it pretty good justice. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was definitely a tournament I remember. I remember losing you guys, like, in the quarterfinals. Uh, that game. That's a crazy game. Two to one. Yeah, you were playing for Arsenal. Uh, that was a fit. I mean, we, we were – we were staying the course, no doubt. Guys didn't lose their composure. You could tell we had, you know, some experience to stay with it. In a, in a one nothing, you guys were up one nothing for the longest time, and um, got like the that boy- game was forever. <laughs> yeah, it did feel forever for me too. Yeah, I mean, it, we're midway through that third period, I think, where we plugged our first one, in, and then not too much longer after that, I think we were able to to get a a, a ball, I think, loose in the crease. I think we wound up putting in somehow some way and. We, we came out lucky, but, you know, as the guys went to the locker room, I'm not going to lie to you, as the guys went to the locker room, I, I sat on that bench and had to, I, I had to, I had to gather myself. I was, you know, I was lightheaded. Um, it was hot in that building at the time, too. I was, oh, it was very hot. I was feeling dehydrated. I, I was feeling the pressure, you know, and, and you never want to lose the Penn Hills. You just never want to lose the Penn Hills. It's a rival of ours that goes back to, to youth. And I used to tell people all the time, I, I would have the stomach bug leading into a wizards game you know or leading into a cadet game against jerry bass 13 to 15 year olds and i was fine i would I'd be I'd be nervous michael jordan always said you know if you had the butterflies and you were nervous that's okay it means you cared so i was always i was always caring always had those nerves going before games but when we were playing Penn hills man i was in the bathroom two or three times before then just because I, I didn't want to lose you just don't want to lose that team that's in your backyard you don't want to lose those bragging rights and so I felt like you know, Arsenal was right there. They had, us, they had us nervous. You got you guys had us nervous. Play great. All right, so I want to take this on to a different route because I got a couple more questions. Who is a role model to you within the game? Like, who do you look up to? Yeah, I think I, think I mentioned a couple times. Mark, if it weren't for Mark Madden, I wouldn't be the, the coach I am or the um, ambassador for the game that I try to be right now. Um, you know, Mark was my role model going into all of this based on how he – was able to continue year after year to want to win and his drive to win and, 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 and fear and, you know, hate to lose that, that attitude for me was, was it, but also he actually coached, you know, he wasn't a door opener. He, he coached strategy. He coached X's and O's. He had a system. 
And I wanted to ad adopt that and, and see if I can pick and point out other systems along the way. In 2005, I had a chance to watch the Czechs and the Slovaks play at the ISBHF World Championship, which was here in Pittsburgh. And so I got a chance to watch that in 2005. And um, so, you know, those teams were, were role models. They taught us how to stack a penalty kill and how to defend you know, our zone um, to, to not allow entries and things like that. And, and warm-ups. You know, we learned just some small things. Jerry Bass was another one. Jerry Bass coached at Penn Hills, and he had umpteen U10 victories at the 79-year-old Penguin level and umpteen national championships at the U12 or U13 level with the 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And um, we always had uh, great matchup rivalries where we were trying to match up. He was trying to match up, and we would play chess match back and forth. And I'll never forget Jerry, one of the slow-hour team down in Canada one year in the heat. You know, I guess he didn't think that – I think he thought we were right there on the cusp of beating him in a, in a championship game. And he, he broke the door. I'll tell you he didn't, but he broke the door. Um, <laughs> that was, it was getting, you know, and it took a good half an hour for the, the repair. And um, I'm not saying that's why we lost, but, you know, just always thinking. He was always thinking about ways to have an advantage and to get an advantage on you. And uh, for, for me, um, I think just trying to do it the classy way. Um, but learning from Jerry and Mark were, were, were crucial. And being, you know, wanting to be, as good as those Hauser teams, the Chris Hauser teams that eventually turned into the Bobby Hauser teams up in Lemonster. I think, you know, those guys were, were definitely people that um, did a lot for this sport. Um, Hall of Famers, um, probably, you know, if anything, the, 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 some of the greatest Hall of Famers you could ever ask for, for what, you know, people like that have done to help grow the game. And for me, I think it's just my energy right now helping to, to continue to carry that along and, and make it go even further. That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, those two guys are like kind of local legends too that brought it up when you were a child as well. Yep. Um, okay. Here's another question. How has being a coach helped you outside of hockey? Like what lessons has being a coach in the game of hockey taught you that you were able to apply to being a teacher or being, or any, or being a father or anything else in life? Yeah, I think balance, you know, being a coach, you have to be balanced. You have to be flexible. Um, so I think it's helped me to do all that. Um, public speaking, if you're going to be able to command a locker room, you can't sound like a babbling idiot in that locker room unless that's just not your style. You let the assistants do it. For me, you know, I, I'm, I can be a control freak at times. Some people are probably laughing because I'm probably a control freak all the time. But, you know, being able to do those things in the classroom are crucial as well because when you're working with, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, um, they have to you, – again, you can't be a babbling idiot. You have to be prepared. And we prepare ourselves going into hockey games and – come up with strategy and game plan going into the locker room and be talk about how to execute it, what the keys are going to be in teachings a lot like that. Um, not to mention to get on each player's individual level. Um, you have to be able to do that as a player. I've had players like Craig Canaferi in the past where you weren't going to get through to Craig Canaferi. If you were um, being kind or soft about how he was playing, you had to be in his face. You had to grip up his shirt. You had to tell him, look, I'm going to punch you in the face. If you take another penalty, you had to be in that guy's face to get him going while there's other players where, you do have to at times be careful how you say things and walk on eggshells. And yet you could push, not baby them around. You, you know, I'm not one to try to baby, but you, you push them enough to where they're not breaking. You hope they don't break. But at the same time, um, you, you have to be a little softer with how your approach to them. And in the classroom, it's the same way. You're going to have kids that you need to get through one way while other kids learn a different way. And so um, being able to do all of those things, I think, have made me both the teacher and the player. And flexibility, balance is everything when it comes to parenting. Um, patience is everything when it comes to parenting or being a husband and um, being able to, as a coach, not be the guy that just says, this is my way or the highway. 
you know, I got, I got captains who help to make the decisions for the teams. We, we talk about things with our assistant coaches as well. And, and so from there, that's, you know, a lot like a household, right? You don't make all the decisions. Jessica and my wife is the best ever and it helps to, you know, mold the household that we have right now, which isn't an easy one, but um, no one really has it easy. That's awesome. I just learned, I mean, I just learned a lot from you right there. Just understanding how to get on different people's levels. I agree with that. I've watched coaches over the years on teams I played for, like, they, they can just talk to me and yell at me and I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll get it going. I've had to see people, like you said, like get on, like grab them by the shirt or like yell at them. Like, yeah. cause that's the only way they'll learn or you have to be very like kind soft yeah. as well. So just two more questions out there, but th- I mean, this is for any coach that's listening or anyone that is coaching youth or anything. Like what advice do you have for them? They would like for any youth coach or men's coach. Uh, appreciate you know, for me, it's always about appreciating the time you have with those players and making sure you keep the balance for your family. You don't want to burn those bridges. Um, so that balance is going to be huge. Um, but be a student, too. I'm always encouraging people to learn. I'm a learner. I ask a ton of questions when I don't know, and there's a ton of stuff I don't know. So I'm constantly asking questions, whether it's how to put a stove in, which I've got to do a wall oven pretty soon, or um, I just had a, a film session last night with a coach who was curious about forechecking and wanted to talk about the difference of what works on a small rink to the difference of what will work when he coaches the future stars, young kids on a big rink next year against, you know, more of an international level of competition. And so, you know, always be a learner, um, always be patient with your players and appreciate the time because a lot of people will take it for granted and uh, it goes out quick, burns out quick. I'm hope- hopefully uh, here after I play my final year, I'm looking to get into coaching. Let's do it. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I mean, obviously, I'll still be playing ball, ball hockey, but I'm looking to get into coaching ice hockey a little okay. bit, like maybe helping out with the youth and everything. I'm starting to do that now with my friend Willie McKean. Uh, we started our clutch hockey business, so we're just um, – nice. well, we're just trying to mentor kids and send them in the right direction, help coach a little bit. Um, yeah, I was just going to say – no, I was just going to say, and if there's anything I could do to help out, let me know. As far you know, one of the projects we're working on at USA Ball Hockey is to actually have our first ever official coaching certification program. It's almost done. Um, you, you do it in ice, and why wouldn't you be doing it in, in ball as well? Um, again, this gives those volunteers a chance to actually learn the game, um, and it gives USA Ball Hockey uh, the, a legitimate chance to make sure that those who are on the bench are not just certified, but they've got their clearances in and – and they've done concussion protocol, and they've learned how to train and hydrate their players. So we're working around the clock right now to make sure that this is something that we produce for for the rest of the country. Absolutely, I mean that's something I'm very interested in. So when the time comes, we'll be we'll definitely be in contact about that as well. Cool. So I want to end this on just like a little uh, lighter note. Do you have any, any funny experiences from hockey? Any funny stories you want to tell me? Funny like, stories. Like, yeah, any funny stories. Just like head scratchers on the rink or just something somebody did. Just I think, you know, I think on the rink, it's so, for us, it's so serious on the rink all the time that you, maybe we miss out on a few of them. It's probably some of the trash talking that has, has made me laugh from the side. <laughs> it's made me laugh. Like there, there's times where like, I'll never forget Joe Powell, we're in Barrie, Ontario. And um, a guy just says something so random off the wall. And, and, and Joe just looks at him and goes, real unique, real original. And the guy was just baffled. Like, how do you respond to that? So it's little things like that. Or my brother Jared jumped on the rink once. There was someone talking trash. I don't want to give his name. Um, he's just running his mouth, running his mouth. And he always wanted to play with us. He asked about playing with us a couple times here and there. And 
I really like them off the rink. I, you know, I think like, you know, that's me though. I, I give everybody another chance, but the guys are hard to, the guys are, they're, they're stiffer than me when it comes to letting an outsider in. Um, and so for me, um, you know, we, we, we never really you know, had this guy play with us and he's tra- he's talking trash. He's talking trash. And he says at one point um, to the bench, I guess I'm not good enough to play. And my brother jumps on and he goes, Oh no, you're good enough to play. We just don't like you. It's little things like, like that probably trash talking. that I think, you know, made me smile, but for me, it's all the antics that the guys did in the locker rooms or all the antics that the guys did in the hot, in the hotels. You know, I'll never forget like the bucket wars, the tsunami wars where you know, they're, 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 you're tilting the bucket up against the door. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You uh, tilt the yeah, bucket up against the door. Like, yeah. Whoever definitely. opens it gets soaked or, or, uh, we're in a we're on a, we're on a junior U.S. trip, and I think someone's I think it was uh, maybe Hauser or Chris Lieber's filled up somebody's uh, clothing drawer with water, you know, and it was just little things like that. Um, the van wars that we had leading up, you know, van races to to get to the the hotel or to get to. Um, we're driving the we're driving back home from Philly one year, and um, we're in major traffic in Philadelphia, and um, we had a couple of vans driving and. Um, you know, everyone's singing, rocking out to music and, you know, belting, losing your voice, just singing. That was what we always did on these trips. And so those are memories I always have, but on the, these van wars, I'll never forget. You, you, you would like, you know, put toothpaste on the other person's windshield or you would go and open up the door and you would, you know, take one of their players out of the car, van and take them, put them in your van just because you're in traffic. You got nothing else to do. It's probably not the most safe thing to do, but those are the memories that the guys had goofing around as I'm driving that I'll never forget. Hey, you got to be a little dangerous sometimes to make funny, funny memories, of course. So I just have one last question. It's really stupid, really quick. I'm a big breakfast guy. What is your favorite breakfast out of waffles, French toast, or pancakes? Man, I'm about to eat breakfast right now, actually. So I paused for a minute. My wife brought it out. It's, what, 1241, so it's a little late for breakfast. We, have, uh, we don't eat till after 12 in this household with the diet that we're on. But I'm an egg white guy right now, so I'm on egg whites. But out of those three, you gotta go with the rocks diet. I saw the rock the other day had these, this French toast that was like, I don't know, it was five inches thick. He had four pieces what? of like five inches thick. And then he poured, um, he poured his own. I'm not trying to promote the rocks. He's not paying me to do this or anything like that. <laughs> um, the way the rock Johnson had his own, um, I think it was tequila infused syrup and tequila infused butter. And he poured it all over and it sounded delicious. It looked delicious. So out of pancakes, um, yeah, out of that, out of that trio, I gotta go with, uh, I gotta go with the French you, toast. You got my mouth watering right now. I'm yeah, like, man. I gotta, I'm a big, I'm a big French toast guy. Are you? That's your, that's your go-to huge, French toast. Huge, huge French toast guy. So over everything, and then waffles, pancakes, they can hit the road. I mean, yeah, they're okay. Yeah, yeah, you gotta now. You gotta go and look up the the rocks infused. No, don't do that. No, you know what? Don't do that. Just, uh, just make your own. Make your own syrup. Make your own. You know I'm going You know I'm gonna go on and look right after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, Corey, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and telling your stories. And I mean, I just wanted to get the game of ball hockey out there a little bit more and give people a better understanding of how big the sport is getting and how how much it's growing throughout the country and the world. Of course, like we talked about all the European teams that are just. I mean, how serious they are, how they're training and everything. And yeah. I'm just really happy you're able to come on and talk a little bit. I'm happy you're doing this, Bob, man. This is pretty cool in the world we live in today. Um, podcasts are a good way to be entertained. And I think that you're doing a hell of a job, man. So keep it up. And thanks for promoting our game and, and getting the word out there. I think we all just need to continue to do a good job of that. Letting people, once people find out there's ball hockey, they come over and play and they, they fall in love with it. So it's just us to continue now working with the NHL, working with the NHL network. Um, those guys are big role players in how we're going to continue to to develop this game, not just in the world, but definitely, definitely in America.
Oh, absolutely. Hopefully, uh, I'll get to see you soon at a tournament eventually. You know, if COVID ever goes away, we're allowed yeah, more man. than 25 people in an area. Exactly. So, I know, right? So, thanks again, Corey. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate you having hey, me. Hey, have man. a great day. Right, you too, brother. Thanks. Bye-bye.